instead of chicken. We should swing them around. We don't sacrifice chickens. God forbid. We do not sacrifice chickens. Instead of killing chickens. No, that's the, that wouldn't work. Because the whole point of killing the chicken is that it's alive. So you want to keep it Yeah. It's supposed to be disturbing. Yeah. Like, no, I think I actually resolved a lot of it today. It's supposed to be emotionally disturbing. The whole chicken thing. I feel like we have two kinds of How did you resolve it? The kind that are looking to bring us some sort of resolution and those who are encouraging us to be comfortable being disturbed. Right? I'm definitely on the uncomfortable being disturbed. No, I right. just like, I he just said, do what, I don't want to disturb yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're learning about killing goats today, so. Wait, that's so funny. <laughs> Not chickens, goats. goats. But, uh, goats or goats? Goats. Well, one goat, actually. Just one goat. But, um, yeah, that's what I do today. Okay. Okay. So we're gonna do something on Yom Kippur. Last time we did something on Rosh Hashanah, and then after the break we'll resume Tanya. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. The Rosh Hashanah thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So first, an introduction. We are living in exile. Um, one of the major consequences of living in exile is that we do not have a temple. I do. There's another one here. Someone's sitting here. There's another one here. Okay. We don't have a temple. And because we don't have a temple, and we haven't had one for a very long time, we have a very deformed Judaism. But because we've had not had one for a long time, we don't realize how deformed it is. So, um, generally speaking, if you ask a person about what Yom Kippur is, you get a series of different answers, um, ranging based on their level of familiarity with Judaism. So you get, like, it's a day where we all go to shul and spend a lot of time praying and fasting and God forgives us for our sins. You get deeper stuff that, like, reveals the essence of our connection to God and stuff like that. And what most people fail to realize is that really Yom Kippur is the day where you're supposed to get a good spot in the temple to watch the high priest kill some animals. Like that's really what Yom Kippur is supposed to be celebrating. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, there's a lot of animals involved. We're only going to talk about one animal. The modern animal, the one that's special to Yom Kippur. Um, generally speaking, okay, generally speaking, um, this is not, I'm not going to give you a whole class on all the ideas of animal sacrifices, but generally speaking, animal sacrifices um, obviously involve killing the animal, but killing the animal is only one part of the sacrifice. Generally speaking, there are other parts of the sacrifice. Um, so there's killing the animal, then there's doing stuff with the blood of the animal, sometimes it involves eating the animal, sometimes it involves burning the animal, sometimes it involves both. Actually, never just involves eating. It always involves burning parts of the animal and sometimes involves also eating part of the animal. And then sometimes the kohan and the priest eat some of the animal. Sometimes the person brings a sacrifice to the animal. There's different sacrifices. They're all different rituals. Okay. There's one sacrifice which is very different 
which is known as the scapegoat. Okay, or in, in the it's um, the goat that is sent to Azazel. Do we know what Azazel is? It literally means a steep, stony cliff. That is what it actually means. However, it has, the word has morphed to be the Hebrew version of hell. So if you say in modern Hebrew to someone, Lech Azazel, you're telling them to go to hell. Um, but literally in the Chumash, it's a reference to a steep, stony cliff. Okay. Would anyone use that now? In that, that steep, stony cliff? No. What? How steep? No, I know. How do you spell steep? <laughs> okay. So the way this works, and I'm going to give a very quick description, is that they would take two goats and bring them to the base of Megdash. The goats ha- ideally would be similar, and they would make a lottery. The Kohen God, the high priest, would make a lottery. One would be designated for Hashem, and that would be offered as a sacrifice using the standard procedures of sacrifices, of slaughtering, of blood sprinkling, blah, 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 which we won't get into. And the other one would be would be sent on Yom Kippur to Azazel. What does it mean to Azazel? Off a cliff. Off a cliff. Yes. Okay. Now, the way this worked was they would take a piece of wool that was dyed crimson red. Why crimson red? What does crimson red represent? Sin. Yeah. Okay. And they would cut it in half. Half would be strung up in the temple, and the other half would be wrapped between the horns of the goat. And then the person who would take the goat to Azazel, to the steep stony cliff, and then he would throw the goat off the cliff. As that sounds barbaric, it is quite barbaric. Okay. I, will not, I will not go into the gory details of what happened to the goat, but let's just say the gory details are there, and the Torah discusses them, and they're relevant, but we won't get into it. However, when the goat was no longer alive, which happened generally before it made it to the bottom of the cliff because it's steep and stony, the crimson wool would turn white. Now what does white symbolize? Purity. Purity. And then at the same time, the crimson wool on the goat, around the goat's horns would turn white. Also, the other half of the wool in the temple would turn white. And at that point, when the crimson wool turned white, what do we know? That all the sins have been atoned for. And that's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's how the atonement works. You throw the goat off the cliff, and God cleanses away the sins. Questions? How do you spell Azazel? Right here. It's right there. It sounds very deep. What? Um, I don't know. Okay. Slightly random question. Yes. What? Kipper, why is that a kind of fish? Didn't know that it is a kind of fish. Isn't it? It is. Why not? You are, not you are. Okay. Why? Okay. Why would this is a person? Why is this a person? Okay. So this is, the, so, okay. I will answer your question on two conditions. One, which is you ask no follow-up questions because it's not the main topic of the class. And two, you do not expect me to be politically correct. Okay? I'm going to give you the truth. The Torah 
allows for the killing of animals for eating food. Jews have to kill animals a certain way called shechita in order for it to be kosher to eat. There's one exception to that, I'm not gonna get into that right now. And as far as the Torah is concerned, that the laws of slaughtering are not there to prevent the suffering of the animal. So much so that many of the medieval authorities say that if the Torah was that concerned with the animal suffering, it wouldn't have allowed us to eat animals altogether. Um, so, the Torah has a prohibition against unnecessary, emphasized, underlined, italicized in bright letters, the word unnecessary, cruelty to animals. And I'm using, so cruelty means that you're actively doing it, number one. So if the animal is suffering and you're not involved in any way, there's no Torah prohibition. Like if some animal is like out there in the wilderness, you don't have to go do anything. Number two, it has to be unnecessary. Now necessity is a matter of standards, right? What is considered necessary, what's not considered necessary. And there's a whole section of the Code of Jewish Law, what's considered necessary. Religious needs are considered to be necessary things. So if atoning all of the sins of Israel involves throwing a goat off a cliff, that's considered to be a necessary thing. It's more necessary than having food to eat. Um, that being said, any cruelty to the goat outside of that would be absolutely forbidden. Okay? In fact, so just mentioning the chicken thing, setting aside you know, what your personal feelings are about slaughtering chickens and the whole Kaparas thing, is certainly the case that caring for the chickens up to the point in which they're slaughtered has to be done in a way that doesn't ha- cause unnecessary suffering to the chickens. And I would like to say that everybody does that, but that would be something I would like to say. It's not always the case. So yeah, the Torah does not have a blanket prohibition on animal cruelty. If you're really interested in knowing more about that, I did give a class on this many years ago that's on the SoundCloud about the Torah's view about vegetarianism as an ethical principle. But that's not today's class. Um, yeah, if you're a vegetarian, you might want to listen to the class sitting down. Yeah? Um, how do we know which goat is the one to be taught? Oh. Because they do a lottery, they have two. They have two pieces of gold. One one has engraved in it to Hashem, and the other one is engraved in it to um, to Azazel, to the cliff. And they're put in a box, the, the, and they're moved around. So he can't tell what the Kohen can't tell which one's which. And he puts his two hands in, and arbitrarily grabs one, puts one in each hand, and then picks them up. And then the the lieutenant high priest reads them off. And so if the right hand is the one for Hashem, then the right goat. Go to his right, goes to sacrifice, and left one goes to Azazel, vice versa. That's what they determine. Two goats. Ideally, equal size, shape, color, value. And is that how we get like, a more okay with the fact? Because it's like we're not choosing the goat. No, being... no, no. <laughs> Look, they're both going to die. It's just one is throwing out a cliff, and the other one is being slaughtered, and like, you know, they're both dying. I mean, again, I'm not getting the Torah does not see killing animals as an in principle evil it sees unnecessary cruelty to animals as an in principle evil and necessity is a matter of what your objectives are in life yeah is there compensation the goat owners the goat is purchased by the half of the community the community yeah the the temple collects a tax from every Jewish man um, on behalf of the whole Jewish people and then they use that funds to purchase the goat as well as all the communal sacrifices. Is it like an honor to be the one to provide the vote? I don't know. Probably. Okay. So, what we're going to focus on today's class is specifically what we're missing because we don't have the goat. How Aryam Kippur is like a lame, deformed Jim Kippur because we don't have the goat. 
Right, so you were expecting to hear how wonderful Yom Kippur is, and now we're going to learn about how we're going to cruise In fact, why do we spend so much, so much time in Shul Davening and Yom Kippur? Do you know? There are two reasons. One, because we have an extra prayer, because on Yom Kippur we have five prayers instead of the usual four for a holiday, but that's another topic. But that, that adds like an extra 45 minutes, really. An hour and 15 if the Chaz likes to sing along. You know what really, you know what really makes it drag out? That when the Chazan repeats the Musa, he goes on to a whole long poetic description of the Kohen Gadol's temple service. And describes the slaughtering of the animals and the throwing off the cliff and the sprinkling of the blood and the people bowing. And that's what takes so long. That's what really pushes Yom Kippur over the edge. Pun not intended. <laughs> so... So what I want you to understand is that this is so much a central part of Yom Kippur that the, even the fact that davening takes so long, like the real length and the added length of the davening is not so much about the confessing. There's a lot of that too. Is the description of the service of the Kohen Gadol in the temple. Um, and we're going to focus on one aspect, which is the scapegoat. Okay, what we're missing. In fact, after that whole thing, he says, and we're so unfortunate we don't have this anymore. So hopefully Mashiach is coming today. And that means two things. One, we don't have to fast this Yom Kippur <laughs> because the inaugural celebrations of the Beis Migdash last for seven days and override Yom Kippur. So that's cool. Two, we'll have a scapegoat so we won't have a lame Yom Kippur. And if God forbid <laughs> Mashiach doesn't come, at least you'll appreciate why the Chazan's going on and on and talking about all those things. Well, now we Probably. Really? Yeah. Well, Jewish customs don't stop because Mashiach comes. Okay. Still so we're still going to also dominate every single day? Yeah. As well as Karbanis? Yeah. What? They did that in the well, second temple also. Sure. And the first temple too. Yeah. Be dominant as well? Yeah. Okay, you learn new things every day. <laughs> Wait, did the, did the thread always change colors every year? No, but we're not going to get into that. If, if the Kohen Gadol didn't do his service properly, then the goat doesn't work. It's a, whole, it's a whole service of God, right? It's like, if you don't keep Shabbos properly, then what Shabbos is supposed to achieve doesn't happen. If you don't do the service properly, then yeah. But it was a very big, happy celebration when the, when the thread turned, when the, turned colors. Okay, so we're going to do this in the English. Sorry, a water bottle and my gemara. The is on top of that stick. Okay. Right on top of that. Okay. So what we have here is three laws from the Rambam, okay? Now, the Rambam is very special because the Rambam is the only halachic codifier who codifies all of Jewish law. A code means that if you want to know the law on a particular topic, you can look it up and get actually the law. If you learn Gemara or any of the other sources, they're discussions, and so you have to like, you don't really know what's discussed where, and you don't know what the conclusions are until you learn the whole thing. But a code is like, you can just look it up. And... All the other codes only deal with the laws that are practiced during exile. The Rambam is the only one who did, codified all of Jewish law. So if you want to know the laws about temple services, you need to look in the Rambam. That's one thing. The other thing is that um, there is a general principle that the Rishonim, the medieval commentators, and the early Achronim, they wrote their works with divine inspiration, with Ruch HaKodesh. So remember that whole thing we discussed about Tanya way back when, the beginning of Tanya, how it was written with divine inspiration? And there's more there than the Yom Turbino. So this, that doesn't just apply to Tanya, that also applies to the works of the Rambam, Rashi, etc. Which means that we can pay very careful attention to even the slightest change in wording is key to some very deep, profound ideas. 
All right. Fine. Let's, let's start. Since the goat sent Azazel atones for all of Israel, the high priest confesses upon it as a spokesman for all of Israel. As it states, he shall confess upon it all the sins of the children of Israel. Okay. I would like to stop and make an observation. In Judaism, there's a... Do we have a concept of vicarious atonement? Vicarious means it happens through, it doesn't happen through you, it happens through somebody else or something else. Yes, yes that's what we just read, right? You sin, and then what happens? Who, who, who confesses your sin? The high priest. Yeah? And then it's atoned through his bringing, or his ritual with this, uh, with this goat. Okay? So that's very important. I would like to point out that this is, goes all the way back to the finish. Atonement can happen through other people, not necessarily through yourself. The goat sent us atones for all the transgressions in the Torah, the severe and the light, those violated intentionally, those transgressed inadvertently, those he became conscious of and those which he was not conscious of. All are atoned for by the goat sent to Azazel. That's a good deal, right? All of your sins. The idea that a person kills unintentionally and then he runs to the city of refuge when the Kohen Gadol dies, that person goes free, is that a similar idea of like the Kohen Gadol yes. has to die? Yes. So it's not, so the Kohen in general, our instituted party to atone for us? Mm-hmm. In fact, you know who eats the sin, a generic sin offering? The Kohen. And it actually says the atonement is achieved when the Kohen eats. The Kohen eats and you get your atonement, yeah. Do you know the difference between a rabbi and a priest is? Like, why do we translate Kohanim as priests as opposed to and rabbis or rabbis? Like, you know the difference is? You don't need a rabbi. Like, really. I know, that's something I should say. Not in my interest. What's a rabbi good for? Teaching. Teaching. But what if you already know? Supervising. What about Gabi? What if you already know? In other words, you only need a rabbi if you don't know. If you know, you don't need a rabbi. Yeah, that's true. Practically, they don't. Now, in what? Like, even big rabbis have their own rabbis. That's the idea of leadership. Because, as a a practical matter, as a practical matter, um, most people do need guidance and do need to be taught. And even those that, you know, know, even those people that objectively there's no one there to guide them uh, emulate God just as God God does things that he doesn't really need to do to to set an example. So, even. God consulted the angels before creating people to show his humility, but he doesn't really need to, to teach us that we should also consult. There, are, there, there is this idea, but in real, I mean, really, a teacher is somebody if you, is, because they know what you don't know. They have experience that you don't have, they acknowledge that you don't have. In principle, if you have the knowledge the teacher has, you don't need to teach. You know? Now, in reality, it doesn't work like that. In reality, you know, nobody's perfect. Okay. But a priest is actually totally different things. A priest is somebody who does... Frankly, I'll use the word. I don't like the word. He does rituals that are necessary for your soul. And if he doesn't do those rituals, your soul doesn't get what it needs. And you can't do those things. I can't do those things. Okay? There's all sorts of different rituals and different things in the temple. And the priest is, a, is one of the instruments by which that happens. So in the case of atonement um, on Yom Kippur, yeah? It's the Kohen Golan, in this case it has to be only the high priest and only the high priest is necessary in order to facilitate what happens. So if you want the atonement that's granted to you by this, uh, this goat, 
you need the high priest to do his thing. You cannot do it. Right? So this person is doing some ritual on your behalf, not teaching you how to live on your own. Right? They're very different roles. Do we really have... I mean, we have people who are halakhically priests or halakhically but do they have that role anymore still? They, they do. There's one thing we can, there's one thing the priests can do without a temple, which is give a blessing. We yeah, you're right. I said, you're right. Redeeming the firstborn. Yeah, I take that back. Redeeming the firstborn and um, redeeming redeeming firstborn or redeeming redeeming firstborn people and animals and right, all the firstborns and the, the blessings. But again, those are rituals that you that are necessary for your soul and you can't do them. Right. So it's like kind of a spiritual role. It is not like a rabbi. A rabbi is an educational role. Okay. You mean their blessings considered like higher than a normal person's blessing? No. No. Their blessings are not their blessings. They're, They're channeling God, which is why it doesn't matter how holy they are. It doesn't matter how righteous they are. The only thing that matters is they haven't killed anybody. Do they lose their right to kill someone? Yeah, even if it's accidental. If they were responsible in someone's death, they can no longer channel that. But other than that, yeah. So, you know, you could be a prophet, and you could be a rabbi, and you could be a whatever, but you... you that blessing can't come through you because it's, there's, the Quran has this basically serves a spiritual role of you know mediating between the people and God and most of that requires a temple okay so all the sins they're all atoned for however this applies only if one does tshuva one does not do tshuva the goat only atones for the light sins so it's important now to know which are the light sins which are the severe sins which are the light sins and which are the severe ones? The severe ones are those which one is liable for execution by the court or kares. False and unnecessary oaths are also considered severe sins even though they're not punished by kares. Other prohibitions and positive commands are not punished by kares are considered light sins. Okay, so we divide all of the sins into two categories, severe and light. And the way you can tell is based on the punishment. There's something called kares. I mean, execution, everyone knows what execution is, yeah? There's something called kares. The Torah, when it comes to certain sins, it uses this term kares, which literally means cut off. Okay, so we're going to need a diagram. state of exile, if you don't cure the kares before the age of 60, you will die. However, in exile, because we're, our bodies get life from evil sources, 
we can stay alive even past 60 with. So in, in, in temple times, if a person did a sin with karis and they didn't cure that karis problem, um, yeah, they would be dead by 60. Okay. So what are... What? No, that's a myth. It's a myth. If you look at if you look at if you look at statistics, half of people die before the age of two. Okay. Which which now what that does is that drops the um, what do you call it that drops the the the, the av- mortality rate right right, and so it's like people like people have life expectancy is forty five. That doesn't mean people drop dead at forty five. It means that half the people died before two. But like once you made it once you made it past like. 50-something, you were pretty decently likely to make it into 70s. Okay. Yeah. Past 70s was pretty rare, but... There's, a, yeah. there's like a few cutoffs. There's like before 2 and then before 20. I think there's a few cutoffs. I know. Washing hands. Solve so many problems. Okay. Now, so what are some examples of sins that have kares? And what are examples of sins that don't have kares? Just so we know what we're talking about. So I'll throw out a sin and you can guess. Okay? Eating chametz, bread products, on Pesach. Kares or no kares? Kares. Kares. Violating Shabbos. Kares. Murder. Kares. Eating the back part of a cow, where the, the, the fat's from the back side of a cow. Kares. Yeah. yeah. The fat's in the back side of a cow. Yeah. No, even if it's slaughtered properly. No, isn't it that lie? Yeah. Abraham is from a live animal. Oh, what's it called? Isn't it as There's Gita Nosh and Yeah, yeah. Okay, here are some examples of non Kares things. Pork. Not Kares. Yeah. Apparently, it's worse to eat the wrong part of a cow than it is to eat pork, right? This is why you shouldn't rely on cultural knowledge for your knowledge of Judaism. Yeah. Um, what else? Violating holidays. Not cars. But you said Shabbos. Shabbos. Sorry, 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 no, no. Violate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? What about what's Yom Kippur? Kippur? Yom Kippur's cars. But like He's not, not just like violating, like turning on the light, not fasting. Like not turning on the light is also cars. Yeah. Wait. So which holidays? Like if you like. Um, if you like plant a, f- if, 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 plant a f- if you what would you do um, on Yantif that would be a, not, a biblical non karis thing um, like if you build a building on Rosh Hashanah that's not karis it's forbidden you know yeah, yeah so. um, the things that are not studying Torah not karis which is good because you know but men it's a, it's a sin it's just it's just for men okay missing Shema in the morning again this one's for, all the time bound ones are for men not karis in fact, the only, the, 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 so there's a list of them. You know, you can go through the Torah and look every time it says one of these terms, like the soul will be cut off, or they'll be cut off from their people or something like that. Those are the cards. Those are serious sins. Okay. Um, so some sins, they don't cut that connection, and some sins do. They, the goat, if you've done tshuva, it atones for all of the sins. If you didn't do tshuva, it only atones for the ones without cards. Violating a positive mitzvah is worse than, than doing a negative mitzvah. Shouldn't that be the definition of what's karis and what's 
because when you say something is worse, it's in different contexts. So, kares has to do with how, with, with, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but sins affect the soul differently. And some sins have, have the ability to cut that connection. And it's, by the way, not unique to negative. There are two positives that also come with kares, which is not having a circumcision for man and choosing not to participate, choosing not to have a circumcision for a man and not participating in the Pesach offering. Also, so it's not, it's not, most of the Christ things have the negative, but it's not, it doesn't link strictly up to positive or negative principles. It's a different, it's a different dimension of the sin. Okay. Um, these things have the ability to, to create I'll get, I'll get into those later, actually. In class. Choosing not to have a circumcision, that means like the... As an adult. Okay. The, 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 yeah. The, the child didn't have a circumcision, grows up, and as an adult, she's not to have a circumcision. Yeah. Um, isn't that on the father if the child doesn't? Until, until, until they're old enough to know better. So, but it's not like as great as for a child. Yeah. I mean, it's still pretty serious. Okay. So a light sin is something that doesn't get you executed. Or a car. Or that doesn't cut you off. Right. Right, but which is not, it's like I don't know if you know this, but in the news, like sometimes, like there's like an accident or a terrorist attack, or like, and they'll say like there are some people like and, and they'll say like there, 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 there's like light injuries or moderate injuries or serious injuries. You know what that means? Just light means they're gonna live. Serious means their life is in danger, and moderate means. It's not for like they're not their life. It's not can't say their life is not in danger, but it's not like that their life is so just like in between, right? Now, so that means that like somebody you know gets injured and like God forbid like they lose an eye, but they're perfectly their condition is stable. Then the news reports that as a light injury, but that person doesn't think their injury is light, right? It's a pretty heavy thing. Right? So the idea here is when we say light and tears, we're talking about this idea of being cut off or not being cut off. There's a whole bunch of other problems. Right? A light sin is not a, it's not, a, it's not a small matter. It's a serious thing. It just, when it comes to this idea of cutting off the head of the soul from the foot of the soul, it doesn't do that. So the goat is the only way for that to be no, 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 no. We have more text to read. Okay. Fine. Turn over the page. Next halacha. Because this is depressing, right? First off, it was pretty cool though that you get the light sins for free, right? You don't even have to do tshuva. Yeah. It's not bitter. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense. All right. Um, and why are we spending so much time now? Like, not only you can't even do teshuva with Hashem, like, if I, if I one time offended somebody and that person has not forgiven me. I'm not, when you're talking, uh, sins that hurt other people are a separate discussion. Oh, so we're do, talking yeah. here. This about is only assuming you're talking between you and God. That's why I didn't bring examples of killing people. Even though that has courage, because <laughs> you can't bring the person back to life. So then you're just doomed. Like, there's, no, there's nothing to do about that. If you murdered somebody, like, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. That's, that's a different discussion. Sometimes if you hurt someone, you can make it up to them. Sometimes you can't. At present, when the temple does not exist, there's no altar for atonement. There remains nothing else aside from tshuva. We have no goat. Tshuva atones for all sins. So you don't need the goat. You just need a tshuva. Even a person who was wicked his whole life and did Shuva in his final moments will not be reminded of any aspect of his wickedness as it states. The wickedness of the evil one will not cause him to stumble on the day he repents from his wickedness. So if you were a bad person your whole life, you do Shuva at the end of your life, you're good to go. 
Live or live, depending on you know. But God is not gonna you know have any problems with you. In this life. Or the next. It says. So does that mean that we assume anyone who spends time in Gehenna does not do the shuvah before they die? No. There's, I will soon. Okay. The essence of Yom Kippur atones for returnees as it states this day will atone for you. Okay. So, how many kinds of atonement have we mentioned here? Two. Nope. One. There's three. There's the atonement of the goat. There's the atonement that comes through tshuva, and then there's the atonement of, oh. of Yom Kippur. Right? Do you see that? So the first thing that we read was about the atonement of the goat. Then it says, now we don't have, we have a tshuva, right? And it says that tshuva atones for all sins. And then the last line says, the essence of Yom Kippur atones for returnees. So there's actually here how many kinds of atonement? There's atonement that comes through the goat, atonement that comes through tshuva, and atonement that comes through Yom Kippur. Okay. Let's put some things in order. We use the word atonement as if we know what it means. So let me ask you, do you know what it means? Like it's a word we throw around. Like, well, what, what does it mean that something was atoned? You someone atoned, achieved atonement. Is it like a makeup test? Fixed. It means that the sin has been erased. Atone means the sin has been cleansed away. Yeah. So can you really do Teshuvah, like I'm saying, with people? Because I don't want to talk about people because the class is not going to be around that. And if we start talking about people, then we'll get caught up. Everybody has their issues with the person that they hurt and they don't know how to make up with them. And then when we do that, then we don't have to do this class. So I'm not going to take any questions. If you hurt another person, it's a different class, a different topic different rules. Only talking about things with God. I'm not going to take any questions about people. So, in terms of if you sinned and the only thing that you damage or the sin is your relationship with God, atonement means what happens to that damage that that damage is erased. Okay. Which means we can't really talk about atonement unless we know what happens when you sin. Okay. When you sin, there are three things bad that happen. Potentially only two, possibly three. Number one, if you like lists, if you like lists, make a list. Number one, rebellion against God. Because God said not to do it, and then you did it. Or God said to do it, and then you didn't do it. So what is that? That's rebellion. In what situation would that not be rebellion? You don't know if you don't know, right. right. If you don't know. Okay. Are there degrees of rebellion? Yeah. Okay. Second thing. Yeah. If it's one of those situations that like, someone puts a gun to your head so the Torah says you should... Is that's that, not a sin. That's not a sin at all. Unless it's one of the things the Torah says you should rather die, then it is a sin. Right. No, but if it's like... It's not a sin. Okay. Second thing. The second thing is it damages your soul. Now, 
does the damage to your soul depend on whether or not you're rebelling against God? And the answer to that is no. It's like drinking bleach. Is it poisonous? Does it matter why you're drinking the bleach? It doesn't change how poisonous it is. So. What? Does that mean all sins affect all people the same way, though? Well, could some people, some people be more sensitive and some people less sensitive to a particular thing? So I'm not saying that every sin damages everybody's soul the same way, or each or or one particular sin damages everyone's soul. So it could be like me eating centipedes and you eating centipedes both damages our souls, but might have a worse effect on mine than on yours. But the effect of damaging the soul is independent of whether you're rebelling against God. It has to do with this is poisonous for your soul. It contaminates your soul. It damages the soul. Kind of more like a health issue. Okay. The third thing, yeah. Do we know to what degree, like each sin damages our soul? Like roughly. So, okay. Roughly. How? Well, there are ones that do cars, <laughs> and there are ones that don't. Okay, that sounds like a binary. Though, like <laughs> right. So I said, roughly speaking, there are ones that like completely cut off your ability to connect to certain aspects of yourself, and there are other ones that don't do that. And then within that, not all choruses are the same and not all non-choruses are the same. It's like certain things are poisonous and they're life-threatening and certain things are poisonous and they're not life-threatening, right? How, how do we know, like my question is, how do we know within things that are, let's say, not choruses? Like, does it say in the Torah? So, in, in, so if you're looking in the Chumash or in the, or, or in, or in the Gemara, that's about as close as you get as a distinction. If you look in Kabbalah, then you get a finer-grained thing where it'll get, start getting into more details. But particularly which sins, you know, okay. And the third thing, and this is my favorite, I don't know why it's my favorite, um, is that sinning creates, um, it creates klipas. Remember what klipas are? Shells that cover over godliness, it creates klipas. Is yeah. the first one only, okay, are these for you knowingly sin? Like the last two are, so, the, so I'm going to go over this. Okay. The rebellion obviously depends on the degree to which your sin is an act of rebellion. Right? So someone who doesn't grow up knowing about Torah and mitzvahs obviously can't be rebelling against God. Right? The latter two things, the la- so the second, the, do not depend on the rebelling against God. Okay? With the second thing works like this, is that some sins are more damaging and some souls are more sensitive. But that has nothing to do with your knowledge. So a very sensitive soul can be very adversely affected by a light sin and a more, um, let's just say, dense soul may be less affected by a more serious sin. But that's like an objective thing kind of with the, I guess, the, the degree of the health of the soul and the severity of the sin. Do you determine the sensitivity of your soul? Like, is that- no, that's determined by God. We're going to get into that when we get into chapter two of Tanya. You can determine your sensitivity to your soul. That's a different. Okay. But like throughout your life, you don't like cause your soul to become. No, although you can become more sensitive to your soul and then you can start to feel the effects of things. Okay, and then the third thing depends on the manner in which you do the sin. So what kind of clip you create depends on. So for instance, if you do a sin 
Um, and, and generally speaking, these come in, in two forms, which is when you don't do a mitzvah that you're supposed to do, so that the way that sin comes from an act of indifference or coldness, and it creates what kind of a klipa? A cold klipa. And if you do something you're not supposed to do, even though it's forbidden, that's because you really have a strong desire, and that creates a very hot, passionate klipa. And what does that mean practically? So we'll learn this later on in Tanya. Um, everyone's heard of the idea that we have an evil inclination? Okay. The evil inclination is not actually you. You are, yeah, the evil inclination is not part of you. The evil inclination is the best way of thinking of the evil inclination is like it's a virus, it's an infection. An infection gets into you, right? And so some things are happening, like, let me just give you, what's the difference, say, between, say, cancer and AIDS? There's a very big difference, which is cancer means there's something wrong with your body, God forbid, and AIDS is there's something in your body that shouldn't be there, right? It's an infection. One's a virus that goes in, and one is something that's going wrong in the actual way the body itself working. Some diseases come from infections, some diseases come because something's wrong with the actual way the body itself is functioning, yeah? Are we saying that the, the creation of people can come from there are two different kinds of klipas. So the way it works is like this. You know you, have a, you know you have desires to do things that you shouldn't do? Okay, so according to Kabbalah, it's elaborate on Chassidus, a Jew's desire to do things that are forbidden is an infection. A Jew does not naturally have those. You know your indifference to doing things that you should be doing? That's also a kind of an infection. That's not natural to a Jew. Now, what happens when a person sins? So a Jew is kind of like a petri dish. If you put a, if you put a um, infectious bacteria in a petri dish, what happens? It starts to grow, right? Okay. If 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 the klipa gets you to do something, and then you do a sin like the klipa, then that klipa just gets makes copies of itself. And so now, what happens? You have a. You have that, th those desire. You have more of those desires. Okay, but there again, the thing is, the way it's understood, that's not actually part of you. That's not actually the person. Okay, so in other words, if you let's use the example, you like really knew you were supposed to like go to eat matzah at Pesach, but you didn't. So, number one, that's rebelling against God. Number two, your soul is now. Um, damaged. And number three, there's now a demonic force inside of you telling you it's not worth doing any other mitzvah either that wasn't there beforehand. It's a lot of problems that are created by a sin. And that's a kippah. And that's the kippah. Yeah. yeah. You were saying about the infection. What, what is that? So, Just like an external... It's an, it's an external thing, but it comes inside the person. We say that, so the fact that you are indifferent to mitzvahs to the degree that you are or the fact that you desire to do things that are forbidden to the degree that you are, those are things that are actually external to you that have become internalized, like an infection. But then there's a separate thing, like a blind person can't see a beautiful painting. That's not because they have an infection, that's because their eyes are broken, right? That's more like the second thing, that the soul becomes, something, something damages the soul. Okay, so the rule is like this. In terms of rebelling against God, it's very simple. If you're rebelling against God, God's gonna punish you. If you're not rebelling against God, 
then he's not going to punish you. That sounds straightforward enough? Okay. So, if you do tshuva, you decide you're not going to sin anymore. You're still rebelling against God? So, how easy it is to avoid punishment? Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Like this. As long as the person is, as long as the person is rebelling, they deserve punishment. If they decide they want to stop rebelling against God, now that God foregoes the punishment. That's simple. The hard part is, what about the klipas that were created? What about those infections that are created? What about the damage to the soul? How do you heal that? That doesn't just automatically go away when you decide. And it's like, person, you know, people do this. They, like, they do stuff they're not supposed to do. They don't do stuff they're supposed to do. And at a certain point, they decide, you know what, I want to go back to being more devoted to God. Okay, God's not going to punish you for your previous misbehavior. But the damage to your soul is still there. The klipas that you created are still infecting you. They don't disappear because now you've changed your mind. And what is atonement? Atonement is either healing the damage to the soul or getting rid of the infection. Or both. Yeah. Is this parallel to like if you smoked your whole life and then at like let's say age 60 you're like, oh this is bad and you need to stop? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just like that. So the sins are carcinogenic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, when you were describing the idea of having an infection and then having like something wrong with you know, yeah. yourself, are you, the first one was the damage to your soul? Yeah. Okay, and then the infection is the clipper. Right. So let me give you some concrete examples, okay? Mm-hmm. So first off, We have eyes. Eyes allow us to see, yeah? If you stare at the sun, what happens to your ability to see? It goes away, right? Does it go away all at once? No, but you know, don't, don't play around with it, right? It's very hard to calculate exactly how much damage you're doing, okay? So, eating non-kosher food damages your soul's eyes. Your soul has eyes. What do the eyes do? They allow the soul to see God. And when it sees God, that's what gives you your sense of belief that God is real, that Torah mitzvahs are real. What happens if you eat non-kosher food? The soul starts to go blind. And if the soul goes blind, what is the practical consequence of that? What happens to your ability to believe in God and Torah mitzvahs, that they're real and important? They get damaged. Now, does that mean everybody's equally sensitive to every non-kosher food in the same way? No, it's just the same way it says that not everybody's staring at the sun for the same amount of time, right? They're individual sensitivities. So that's like the second thing. In addition to that, when you ate the non-kosher food, yeah, that created that that created this clip that now infects you and gives you a desire to do other things that are forbidden that you otherwise would not have had a desire to do. So, so like twenty years ago, I ate some non-kosher food, and the result of that is now it's still harder for me to believe in God, and I desire to sin in ways that I otherwise would not have desired to do. And the fact that I don't want that to be part of my life doesn't just magically make it disappear. And atonement is the way to, have, to correct those problems. That's what atonement means. It cleans those out. It heals those things. So tshuva is the same atonement for the last Oh, effect. right. So tshuva gets you... Gets the, the, the punishment for rebellion tshuva takes care of instantly. The, 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 the rebelling for the, the punishment for rebelling against God Shuvah gets rid of that instantly because the minute you do Shuvah you're not rebelling against God now if you look here he says that, he says that 
the goat atones for all the sins, yeah? Yom Kippur atones, and Tshuva atones, right? Okay, here's the difference. We'll start with Tshuva. Tshuva atones. In other words, if you do Tshuva, God will heal your soul and remove the klipas. Okay, what is Tshuva? This is important. What is Tshuva? Tshuva means to return to God. Okay, here's the rule. The more atonement you need, the deeper and more intense the tshuva has to be for this to work. It's like an input-output thing. The more work you need. In other words, right. In other words, like this. If, you, if your soul is really damaged and you have a lot of eclipas infecting you, can you, in order for tshuva to, to, to in, um, elicit atonement from God, your tshuva needs to be equally as intense and equally as powerful. Which basically means, and you're not going to like this, how intently do you have to do tshuva as equally as the amount of intensity you had in the sin? In doing the sin? In doing the sin. Because, all right, and that's in terms of getting the klipa, and you have, the tshuva has to have, and how in, to, to heal the soul, the tshuva has to have come be it you have to really desire that, that your soul be healed. And so what this means, practically speaking, is that getting atonement through tshuva is actually quite hard. Because tshuva itself is very simple. I don't want to sin anymore. I don't, want to, I don't want to keep going the way I was going. I want to improve my life. I want to start trying to work on my relationship with God. Great, you did tshuva. But that tshuva doesn't necessarily heal all of the defects and, and cleanse yourself of all of the things. In order for tshuva to elicit from God the kind of um, healing effect that really atones for all the things, the tshuva has to be as sincere and as deep and as intense and as powerful as the uh, atonement. So think about it. How deeply ingrained is your evil inclinations that you've absorbed into your life? Right? How, how damaged is your soul? And if the tshuva is like not on that level, it's not going to... So this is the problem. It's like, in principle, we can do tshuva and elicit atonement from God, but in practice, it's like, you know, you could run a marathon, right? Like, there's basically every human being is capable of running a marathon. I realize people, you know, wheelchairs not, but most people are capable of running a marathon, regardless of the state of their physical health. I don't know whether they'll live afterwards, but at least one marathon they can run, right? But in, in reality, how much work do they have to do to get to the place where they could run the marathon? Right? It's, so saying, you can, you can heal all of the damage to your soul through tshuva. You can get rid of all of the eclipas that you've infected yourself with through your sins, through tshuva, right? But how powerful and how intense does that tshuva have to be? Okay, so, I mean, it's nice that that option is available. On the other hand, we have the goat. What does the goat do? That atones for your sins, right? And what does it say there? Do you need to do tshuva? For the light sins, you don't even need to do tshuva at all. And for the heavy sins, you do need to do tshuva. Does, right? But that makes it more sound like it's a condition. Why do you need the goat if the tshuva... Ah. Oh. Because the goat is a ritual by which the Kohen Gadol is able to channel God's whatever to heal all of the sins and to get rid of all of the infections 
it's not your doing. That's the thing. You're not doing it. Like right now, if I want to heal all of my sins and I want to, I want to get rid of all these infections, I'm the one that has to do a tshuva that's intense and powerful. But in the times of the base of Migdash, it's like this, yeah? If somebody's sick, could a doctor heal them? If sick is healable by a doctor, okay. If your soul is damaged by your sins and you're infected with klipas from your sins, can the Kohen Gadol do a ritual, a procedure to cleanse you and heal you? Yeah, that's what this, that's what goat does. He doesn't. Unless there's kares and then. Even when there's kares, it says all of them. But only if you did teshuva. Ah. We're gonna get, okay. Why? Why? So, if you think about this, some treatments do they? Some treatments they require the patient's participation, right? And some don't. Like, what's an example? Of something that requires the patient to participate? Lung no. cancer, stop smoking. No, they don't really require. It depends how ethical we want to be. It depends how ethical. They don't really require. Like, we could be unethical and strap the person down to a bed, and we can treat them. And by the way, we do that in, in cases where like, the person's mental capacities, like when they have serious Alzheimer's plus other things, we do that. So they don't really require the person's cooperation. Physical yeah, physical therapy on the other hand, right? Like if you want, like <laughs> the person has to walk and if they don't choose to walk, like there's not, nothing's happening. Like you have to, there are things where the person has to participate. Medically speaking, like the thing that you need done requires something of their involvement. Okay? So the, the what, whatever the sin, whatever the, the, the goat does with the minor sins doesn't really require the involvement of the person. But with, the, with kares, it does require the involvement of the person. Okay? But notice here, if it's, we're not saying that it, we're not, requiring the involvement of the person doesn't mean that the person has to generate it through their own efforts. Right? So how much tshuva is really required here? Like, whatever's true enough for the procedure. I don't know how the procedure works. I don't live in temple times. Okay. So if you're going to weigh these two options between doing tshuva the way we do tshuva now and getting atonement versus the goat, now it's really one of these things that according to the pain is the gain. However much you really push yourself in doing tshuva, that's how much atonement you have. Versus with the goat, it really doesn't so much depend on you at all. What? Like if you had like 80 units of sin intensity and then you did like 40 units of teshuva intensity, you start the year with like 40 units in debt of sin intensity? Something like that. That's kind of depressing. Well, we have one more thing, which is Yom Kippur. And here it says that the essence of Yom Kippur atones for attorneys. Now, what does that sound like? Are, is your teshuva creating the atonement or is Yom Kippur creating the atonement? Yom Kippur is creating the atonement. Now, notice here it doesn't even say if you did teshuva, it says for returnees. Yeah, okay. So what's a returnee? So if you look at the last halacha, which is from the laws of sacrifices, it says, Yom Kippur sin offerings and guilt offerings not only atone for... Sorry. There's a typo here. It should say, it should say only. Only atone for attorneys who believe in their atonement. But one... I don't know. Wait, do not only atone. Yeah, the do not is a, is a typo. You can look in the Hebrew and see it's a type. It's Yeah, the do not should be there. Only atone for attorneys who believe in their atonement, but one, there should be a who. One who rebels against them, they do not atone for him. So what does it mean to be a returnee? 
that you believe that it works. I mean, you do, in other words, if you believe that your kipper creates atonement and you want that atonement, then it atones for you. Okay, so how does this work? Remember I said there are three things about the sin? On Yom Kippur, we, even without a temple, God, God makes accessible to each and every Jew a part of their soul which cannot be damaged. In other words, on this thing I drew, yeah, I drew that as a part of your soul that's cut off. Okay, so this is really an inaccurate picture. Works more like this. And because he reveals that unbreakable connection, you have the capacity to heal all of the damage to your soul. On one condition, which is? You want to. You You believe it and you want it. Now, how hard is it to believe and to want? I mean, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's not that difficult. Which means, Yom Kippur. You believe in Yom Kippur works, you want Yom Kippur to work, which obviously translates into fasting and possibly, hopefully, showing up to show. And then... There is the, the, the fact that your soul has an aspect which can never be damaged by sin. That is revealed. That is made available. And you can tap into that and use that to heal the damage to your soul. And so that thing I said about like eating non-kosher food blinds your soul. Your soul can get its eyesight back or whatever the case might be. However, you know what Yom Kippur does not fix? The infections. Right? There's a difference between a healthy person with an infection and an unhealthy person, right? So the soul can be completely healed from its own deformities, its own defects. But the idea that those klipas have, have infected us, they're still there. You ever notice like after Yom Kippur, your evil inclination doesn't disappear? That buildup of the klipas from our previous sins, that doesn't disappear. And if you want it to disappear, you have to do, you have to, it has to be created through your tshuva, and your tshuva has to be as intense as those klipas are, which is hard. However, in the times of the temple, what did the goat do? The goat got rid of the infection. So I want you to imagine a little what it was like in the temple times. In the temple times, if you believe that Yom Kippur worked and the Kohen Gadol was really accomplishing these things and you wanted your soul to be healed and you wanted these infections to be cleansed, then what happened every Yom Kippur? The day after Yom Kippur, what happened to your previous desires to do the wrong thing, your previous indifference to do, to, to do the right thing? It vanished. 
That's what that's what that 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 thread changing colors from red to white meant. Not just that your soul was healed, but the things that are driving you away from God, they've been cleansed out of you. And so you really could feel different. You really could start over completely fresh. Nowadays, Aryam Kippur doesn't get rid of those klipas. All it does is it heals the damage to the soul. Okay? So what that means very practically is, in temple times, after Yom Kippur, you didn't have, you were like a newborn baby in terms of your Yetzirah, in terms of your inclination. Where did it like get reborn from? Because if... we still have free will. And the world has evil in it. In other words, the, in other words, there's a difference between the capacity to sin and the desire and, 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 and the drive. Now, how that works more specifically, um, the Alter addresses this in Tanya, that there's like a the, the indulging in things that are permitted is kind of the gateway drug into actual sin. But in principle, like in principle, if a Jew never indulged unnecessarily, then they would have no desire to sin. They would never be indifferent to a mitzvah. Now, we don't know what that's like because we have so much buildup. There's so much crusted over us. So much of these, the clip is infecting us. But in temple times, the Kohen Gadol, for anyone who sincerely wanted this to go away, the goat made it go away. And now all we have is the fact that our soul is healed. But here's the question, how in touch am I with my soul? Very nice, my soul is healthy, but how seriously am I taking my soul to begin with? So it's like we can tell this romantic story about how the essence of your soul is revealed and you can heal everything and really there's a level to which you're never damaged. It's all true. But what we're ignoring is that there's this whole other fact is that there's all this schmutz that's still inside of us that didn't disappear because of that. Yeah? How do we stand a chance when people who, like, once a year, by and large, were cleansed to the point of being like a newborn baby, you said, those are the people that got the temple destroyed. Mm-hmm. And we, from our place, with our crusted, overbuilt up, whatever, are supposed to somehow rebuild the temple? Like, that sounds very hopeless. That is a very good question. It's actually a major theme of Chassidus, which is how could it be that people who had a much more overt ability to connect to God couldn't manage it, and we who are so detached are somehow supposed to be able to be successful? Yeah. Um, the simple answer is people have an ability to tap into the deepest parts of themselves when they have no other option. And when they, don't ha- when they do have another option, then they don't. Which means like this. Why is it that Yeshiva Bachram are sick? You know Yeshiva Bachram gets sick a lot? I know about the women's program, but the Bachram gets sick all the time. Do you know why? So busy getting No. Because <laughs> they don't sleep? No. Because there's too many of them in one area? No. They don't have anywhere they have to be. And so the slightest headache and upset stomach, well, have to is a relative term. Now, it's very different when you have a mortgage to pay, right? And you have a job. And your boss is not interested in whether you have a stomach ache. Magically, you see now are able to be like, like how many sick days do people who have to pay the bills take in the course of a year? Maybe one. I've been teaching for 10 years. I've maybe taken in 10 years, 10, six days. 
like of my for just my my own thing. That's maybe, and like I'm not abnormal. Like I have friends who also work. Like, like people just like you have to be really sick to take a sick day. Like you, and I like if I can't talk, then I can't talk. I mean, like I teach right. Okay, if you have kids, it's different because like you know you can't force your kids. To. <laughs> okay, so, but like if you don't have to be anywhere, and it's like a matter of what you're in the mood for, then all of a sudden every little ache. It's like a whole big deal and now I have to be in bed. So they're just dramatic. Right. Right. And it's amazing what happens. Right. So in other words, we respond to pressure. Now, which means when we can suffice with a relationship with God that's based on how much we're feeling and how much we're renewing and how much we're growing, then we don't tap into the fact that we have the ability to connect to God in this. There's a really big spider. Where? Right here. We don't connect. We have this ability to connect to God in a way that um, has a, a, a an absoluteness and a resolve. On the other hand, when we're in exile, you basically have two choices. Which either is you really stick with it no matter what, or you give up on the whole thing. You don't get this like when I'm in the mood, when I'm not in the mood. I mean, think about it. What happens to Jews in exile when they're not going to be um, stiff-necked and um, Absolute about Judaism. That's right. So what happens? All of a sudden, the soul's like faced with a choice, which is either I'm gonna be like all in, you know, come what may, or I'm giving up on this. Like you can't like. Whereas in the temple times, like when I'm in the mood, when I'm not in the mood, like the first temple is really crazy. Like people literally like now I'm in the mood for some God. You know, Yom Kippur was nice. But now I'm feeling like, you know, that, I, that idolatrous cult over there also is kind of good. I can always go back and offer some sacrifices and atone and cleanse and like, you know. You know what I'm in the mood for? Does that work? Well, it worked for 400 something years. But like, literally you can go be like, that idolatrous plan sounds cool and then just come back in time for you before and it cleansed for you? It does, but God started to notice a pattern, which is why he sent the <laughs> prophets and God's like, this is not cool. <laughs> We're, you know, if you keep this up, I'm taking the temple away. And like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then God took the temple away, and then everyone freaked out. They're like, that's it, Judaism's over. God, and then God says to the prophet, says, Judaism's not over. The temple's gone. We still have Judaism. We're going to have to do it differently. But we're missing something. In other words, there is it, there is, we're, the, the idea that Yom Kippur really cleanses you, not just like spiritual stuff you can talk about, like, like really you can feel the day after Yom Kippur that all of the dirt that you've accumulated from all of the sins has literally been wiped out of you. Yeah, the infection is gone. That does not happen nowadays because of Yom Kippur. That happens because of how intense your tshuva is. And if your tshuva isn't a raging, burning fire of tshuva, don't expect your sins, to be, the, the klipas, to be burnt out of you. Your soul will be healed, which is very good. It's a very nice thing. But you still have the struggle of getting, getting to the accessing the soul and being in touch with the soul. Are you saying this is like when parents are like, you better be there by the time I count down from 10, and when they say 10, 9, 8, nobody ever moves? Right. But then by the time you get to 1, everyone's always there before 0? That's right. Okay. Yes. Um, what do you mean when you say tapping into the soul that is revealed? So it's like this. Is it the case that because I sincerely believe that putting on tefillin connects me to God means that I do not desire um, to, I don't know, read, read a good novel instead of putting on tefillin? Is that, you can imagine that those two things can coexist? Okay. So the fact that my soul is good and healthy and therefore the belief is there doesn't automatically mean that I'm 
that I'm choosing to relate to that and to identify with that part of myself. I have to, after that takes work. Why? Because there's other thing pulling me the other direction, right? Now, I could have a separate problem, which is the belief isn't even there because the soul has gone blind. So that problem, Mariam Kippur heals, as long as you want it to. If your soul is blind, it can see. If your soul is deaf, it can hear. If your soul is lost its sense of taste, that all the soul is perfectly healthy after Yom Kippur. But all of the other stuff that's pulling us away from our soul, that doesn't disappear on Yom Kippur. But in the temple times, if the Kohen Gadol does his job properly, it really does. But like that doesn't require effort to tap into that. To tap into your soul. Like you, 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 you use the words like. Yeah. Like, to tap into which thing. The, just the, your soul, like the, that's. It does require effort, yeah, because like my desire to do other things. People are complicated. People have multiple layers to them, so the fact that one layer is perfectly intact doesn't mean the other things aren't dragging you away from that, and you have to put an effort to be in touch with that. I'll give you an example. Yeah, so I used to teach um, in a place where there was a, a lot of, um, a lot of. It was all girls from Lubavitcher homes. And I would get this question every year from several girls, which is like, like, I'm seeing this person and they have doubts about their belief, and what do I tell them? And I always found this question very interesting. It was like, well, do you have doubts? I'm like, no. So then why are you asking me? Like, just tell them. Like, and you know what they, they, they would say? Some version of, well, like, well, I mean, I just believe, I, I believe, I don't know why I believe, but like, what am I supposed to tell them? So, so now, I think we all understand that the, these, these girls are not all of a sudden like the biggest you know, tzaddikim in the world, right? So what's the case? Their soul's ability to see God is intact or not intact? Yeah, although because that's why like, they don't have all these doubts. On the other hand, why is it they still struggle in their own Judaism when it comes to like, practical issues of like, how much they want to push themselves, how much they prioritize their relationship with God? That's a real thing, right? Okay, so... The damage to the soul can be healed, but the fact that there's all this other crust around it, that doesn't disappear. And therefore, for us, it's really hard work to work through that. And if we want to get rid of that, we need to do a true that's as intense as those things, those other aspects of ourselves. Yeah. But what I'm asking is, like, on Yom Kippur, when that, when that part of your soul is revealed, like, what, like, does that require oh, any, to, like anything on your part? It only requires that you believe it and want it. Now, if you want to utilize that to make changes, then I would recommend taking a machzer, which has the prayers for Yom Kippur, and looking through in English and seeing some of the ideas mentioned there and reflecting on some of them, because those are kind of the gateway to help tapping into the stuff. But the soul is going to be healed regardless of that, as long as you believe in Yom Kippur and want it to work. But then the question is, what do you do with that? But if we had a temple, the, the whole Yom Kippur is a totally different thing. Like The idea that Yom Kippur atones and cleanses away the sin is not like a... A spiritual reality. It's a psych- it has a psychological impact because the, 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 the negativity that infects us would actually be eradicated. And th- that's what it says. If you actually look in the Pesukim, he puts all the sins of the Jewish people on the goat, and that goat is bearing the sins, and then what does he do? Bye. Yeah. It's like the goat is like a magnet that all the, sucks all the infection towards the magnet. It's like there's parts of your body where like trying like, like, like um, the white blood cells. You know what white blood cells are? So the white blood cells like absorb the bacteria, right? And the different, the different infectious things, right? And then they, they accumulate. And you know what an accumulation of white blood cells that have absorbed all these bacteria and stuff that's bad for you? You know what that's called? 
pus. And then where should the pus go? Out. That's what the scapegoat is. Like absorb all of the klipas onto the goat and then the goat goes out. And then we are all healthy and clean. However, we don't have a scapegoat. So even though our souls have been healed, all of those klipas are still swarming around inside of us. And if you want to get rid of them, you're going to have to have a chubas that's as intensive as they are. And that's very, very hard. So it would be nice to have a temple with a Hakohen Gog. Yeah. So how do we practically have that top teshuva that's so intense? You don't. <laughs> you don't. You be honest with yourself and realize that that's not realistic. And you live with the fact that you have klipas swarming around inside of you and find a way to deal with it. <laughs> so then, what's the... Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what do you tell a person, what do you tell a person with, <laughs> what do you tell a person with AIDS? What's the cure? There's not a cure. We learn to treat it. We learn to contain it. We learn to deal with problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly the case. Oh, we all have infections. He said just shawa. Our president said, our president said just like shawa. I don't know. Get rid of it. No, but I'm serious. Like, like some person have an infection. There's no cure. There's no cure for this. Your soul is damaged. There's a cure. Yom Kippur. There's klipas swarming around inside of you from your sins. Like, in theory, there's a cure. But in practice, we can't really, most people can't really do it. So what do you do? You learn how to live a life where you can contain those klipas and manage those klipas. But can you manage, like, like if you do so much... Would you like to have a book which teaches you how to manage those klipas? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> He's very into managing the klipas rather than getting rid of them. Because it's not realistic for most people to get rid of them. So nowadays, all we have to do is want is believe in the idea of Yom Kippur and want it to, and like do our part in Yom Kippur, but we can't actually have that intensity. Nope. But that doesn't mean you should give up, right? You could choose. I'm mean, saying you should have the intensity, honestly. Again, but don't don't pretend what you can't like. There, you can you can have some degree of intensity. Get rid of some of the klipas. That's very good, and you should do that. But like, yeah. Be honest, but, you know, the amount of klipas that are swarming around inside each and every one of us after 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, of doing things we shouldn't have done, is not, you know, the kind of tshuva that would require that is the kind of tshuva that literally breaks people's psyches. I mean, there, there are stories of people going through tshuva like that, but like, most people are not capable of doing that and then living normal lives or even doing that to begin with. And so I wouldn't recommend it. Like, sometimes it's okay to just realize like, yeah, it would be nice to have a base in English. That would be helpful. Let's, let's, let's do that. All right. So now you understand why we want a base in English, or at least one of the reasons, and um, why the Kohen, why the, the Chazan speaks about the, uh, the Kohen Gadol so much on Yom Kippur. Or at least part of it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Do you have time for a question? One question. We, we learned a sikha. Oh, if, you, if anyone wants to know the original source, is it, although it's much it more complicated. Was it talking about like a positive difference between like positive and negative, and if one creates a blemish and the other like? No, 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 no. no. That's a different. Okay. How do they dye the sides of books without getting the pages mm-hmm. dirty? How do they dye the sides of books? Like Oh, that's your biggest question? <laughs> 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 it's like, I have one question, don't leave until I know. It's a sikha, I don't so remember important. which book it is. Yeah. 